Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse Podcast, Volume 6, Issue 273, Robotron 2084 or 2084. You can play along with us the next few podcasts we have coming up on Volume 6 all the way to Issue 300. We've scheduled up to now, you can find that over at canerince.com. But the next few we have are The Witcher, that's the original of course, then it's Beautiful Joe. Following that we return to the arcades with R-Type and R-Type 2 and Super R-Type. Then it's Life is Strange. And after that, we return to the Williams well with Joust. Head to canerince.com, as I say, for all that, articles and features, the occasional review, uh, perhaps uh, more commonly used, links to our forum, and also our Facebook page where we share video game news, and our YouTube channel where we have little quick rinses. Sometimes they tie into these podcasts. Sometimes they're just random other games that uh, normally Darren Gargett plays for your pleasure and enjoyment. And if you enjoy all this that we do, you can support us in a number of ways. We have a Patreon. Uh, there's no hidden content behind paywalls, but we are currently trying to achieve a target of $3,000 a month. We've uh, doubled our income in the last few weeks since we launched this campaign. So thank you very much for that. But we still have a very long way to go. If you can donate just a dollar a month, which is uh, 77 pence or about 80 something euro cents uh, to contribute towards the many hours of podcasting entertainment uh, that we send your way with this and our other podcasts, Sound of Play, uh, we are incredibly grateful. You can also buy T-shirts and bags and we get a little cut from that shop.spreadshirt.co.uk. They're very nice quality uh, items as well. I can attest to that. And as I say, we have our other podcast, which comes out every Wednesday, Sound of Play. I host every other one with Ryan and uh, we play some video games, music that we love and that the community requests from over the years. Uh, If nothing else, please do review and rate and subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes or wherever else you get them from. Thanks for listening to that. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 273, are Mikhail Croder. Hi. And returning irregular, regular contributor, Dan Clark. Hello again. Welcome back, everybody. I described this this group as the creaky, crusty gang. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) We are they who can uh, then dredge up the memories from some of the oldest games. Perhaps unsurprisingly, we haven't had a huge amount of listener interaction and correspondence for this uh, particular podcast. We are talking about a 35-year-old video game. And I think maybe one that's actually been somewhat devalued in some ways, in the sense that I think because it's been so widely available cheaply and on compilations and stuff, I think it's become just a kind of another one of those ancient game you have on these compilations but i think it's a game that when you return to it and dig into it as i have done in preparation for this podcast as have mikhail and dan you realize that there's an awful lot going on and i think perhaps one of the main reasons we're going back to this game is that i've seen it described as a timeless or ageless game and i think in some ways that's true and i certainly still enjoy playing it so it's not been any kind of hardship at all to go back to it and uh, and play it some more so a uh, developer is VidKids, which is the the name that uh, designer programmers Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar uh, went by. We'll be hearing a lot from Eugene throughout the, the game. He's never been backward in coming uh, throughout the podcast, I should say. He's never been backwards in coming forwards when asked to talk about uh, his work for Williams Electronics. And so this game came out in 1982. Oh, I was 10 years old, but I don't 
necessarily remember the first time I saw this in an arcade, uh, but I do remember there being variants of the cabinet. You could get the upright one, which is the most common. There's also cabaret and cocktail incarnations. Uh, it's a horizontal orientation game, so not the vertical that many coin-ups are. It's a standard uh, raster screen, cathode ray tube, standard resolution. And uh, by default, it came with a 19-inch screen. The game ran, and this is worth thinking about because it's easy just to reel off these stats. But then when you think about what we're using now, it was a 1 megahertz Motorola 6809 8-bit processor with 32K of ROM and 256 bytes of RAM for the high score tables. Uh, so the uh, the first set ROM set was uh, YO. I don't know why, what the YO is for. Um, they were the first in production um, and you couldn't use that particular ROM in a cocktail cabinet. Uh, next came the blue ROM, which was the one that was around for the longest time, had a cocktail mode. Uh, factory default settings have been slightly tweaked. Finally, uh, 1987 came the, the patched blue ROM or the solid blue I've seen it referred to, which basically fixes a, uh, fixes a glitch where an angled enforcer explosion on a sidewall can trigger a game reset. This was coded by uh, Damar. And this is the code that you'll find on the modern compilations. And this, is, this has been available on PS1, PS2, PS3, PC, Xbox 360, so on and so forth. Midway uh, have re-released their legacy titles on many occasions, bundled in with other so you've got Williams, Midway, Midway bought Williams, and they also hoovered up a load of Atari licenses at some point as well. And I didn't know about this until doing the research for the show. In 2015, there was another official version Larry DeMar put together uh, for a so-called tie-dye ROM, which has a proper on-screen life counter, a larger uh, digit for the score counter, um, fix the glitch, the aforementioned glitch. Uh, you can test uh, the game at uh, 99,900,000. And um, I don't know where you would find that, but it, it's out there somewhere. So Jarvis and Damar, perhaps best known for this, and Defender. And because of the trend that was happening for bootlegs and rip-offs of video games to happen in, in Europe, in particular of American games, uh, they hid an Easter egg, which can be accessed uh, via a, a swiftly entered and complex-ish uh, set of joystick manoeuvres to get uh, the credits up on screen during the game. So, our histories with the game. Do we have clear memories of our early times with Robotron, or have we come by it via conversions, versions, emulations, and, and whatever else. Let's start with our guest, Dan, of course. I remember it as a kid, um, but only very vaguely. I think I thought it was called Robot Ron. I think I remember asking <laughs> the county to play Robot Ron. Um, because it, it seemed to fit the kind of type of games yeah. you got then. Like, sort of, there was Minor Willy, there was like yeah. other things with that kind of naming structure. So yeah, I thought it was Robot Ron. Um, <laughs> I don't know when I figured out that it wasn't, but it was one of those games where I knew that it was going to, stealing my money, that's not a fair way to put it, but I knew that it was going to not be, not give me as much playtime for my 10 or 20 pence as something else would have done. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't resist playing it anyway, just because of the two sticks that nothing else quite felt like that. I went on to play it on the Atari Lynx, of all places, which doesn't have mm. dual sticks in the slightest. So no. control-wise, it's not the greatest way around it. And I suspect they may have made it easier to um, to compensate for that. But I remember being able to 
do much better on the links than I can now on any of the versions I've played on yeah, any of these yeah. arcade treasures or whatever discs since the PS1 era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the arcade remains the most challenging for a number of reasons. Although, as you say, a lot of the home versions had to make compromises as, as regards to controls. We'll talk a bit of, uh, more about those later. Mikhail, how about you? Early memories of Robotron? The sounds, the sights of the arcades? A lot of blinking lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Hypnotic. I, yeah. I, I mean, I must have been... In the year of Robotron 2084's release, I must have been six years old. So still mm. fairly young. I think... I'm pretty sure I've, I saw it uh, one time in a uh, holiday resort in Hastings that I uh, visited with my family. When I was young. Oh, lucky uh, you. You've been to Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> is that sarcasm? <laughs> yes. Apologies to listeners from Hastings. Well, it was a nice holiday back then anyway. There was only one game I uh, dared to play at the time. And that was Crystal Castles uh, by Atari with a, with a glowing trackball. Trackball, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Robotron 2084 looked incredibly intimidating to me as a as a young kid and so i i decided to save my uh what was it what what uh, went into into in those machines at ten the time pence. 10 pence yeah 10 pence pieces I, yes yeah, i decided to save my 10 pence pieces for crystal castles instead and uh, robotron just looked mean it was, looked very intimidating to me so yeah. the, by the time i started playing it it was uh, already uh, in the 2000s uh, on the midway arcade treasures uh, volume 1 and even though it was much harder than I expected it to be, because a twin stick shooter gives you the illusion that you have all the control in the world and it must be a breeze, right? Like you can, you can uh, move around freely and fire independently of, uh, of where you're, you're heading. But uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of a bitter pill to swallow, but still the game felt uh, incredibly playable to me and very, very, very iconic. Yeah, so I do remember seeing Robotron in the arcades as a 10, 11, 12-year-old when, whenever it was still around. But I think I was intimidated too. Now, I'd seen Defender uh, and I'd watched Defender be played a lot, but I was hugely put off by the span of buttons on, on the cabinet. The fact that you had to press reverse to go in the opposite direction in that game. Uh, thrust and hyperspace, you couldn't just move. Obviously, they... they changed all this to make it more friendly for modern controllers when they re-released these games, made them easier to play. I don't specifically remember, but the the memory I have is that when I saw Robotron, I didn't really understand how you were supposed to play it. So I think I did. I definitely would have tried it. Uh, and I remember the the in between screen in particular the the the, the wave transition being very striking. Mm. But more than anything, I, I remember the audio blaring out across the arcades. Now this has some of the same sound effects as Defender, uh, if not very you know, very close uh, proximity to. Um, and we, we'll talk about the sound separately. But that's actually my overriding memory. Now I don't think I really started trying to play Robotron properly until the mid-90s when Midway Arcade Treasures first started happening on the PlayStation 1. This was the first generation, really. I know there were a few 16-bit retro compilations, but really it was the PlayStation era when they started... Uh, being near enough one-to-one emulations, always by digital eclipse. They weren't necessarily spectacular emulations, but they were. They it felt like I remembered playing the coin ops, and so I got this in I guess '96. And by that point, I'd been playing Smash TV, which is a 
spiritual successor come sequel to Robotron by the same team and a game that we'll definitely cover some sometime in the future. So by this point, I was no longer intimidated by Robotron. Smash TV is also incredibly challenging, possibly even more so. Um, and I'd actually finished the, the Super Nintendo version, which was slightly easier in cult with a friend. Uh, and so went back to Robotron to see kind of where it all began and ended up playing it a lot on PS1. Um, and I, inevitably, because of my interests, which are the, the, the passions are the, that led us to doing this podcast and podcasts exactly like this one is that I continued to play these games, continued to buy every every Midway Arcade Treasures re-release across the generations and different versions. I've also played it on MAME and I've never yet had the perfect setup but we'll talk about that but for the last 10 years now 11 years I've been playing irregularly but sometimes intensely the Xbox 360 version which was one of the very first XBLA games to come out it was only a few quid to buy Uh, it has achievements many of which are well beyond me Um, but it has an online leaderboard and so I'm still as of today I've just topped my online leaderboard score so uh, (laughs) I'm still Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, there. Are, there, are, I have eleven friends on that leaderboard, and and I am top of them, uh, including uh, Jonathan Edwards, who is a uh, is my nemesis with these games because he's he's obviously a very talented player, and he uh, he normally trumps me at um, at all the kind of twin stick shooters and and vintage arcade games. But in this case, I am the king. I'm in a, in like in the top five thousand on on XBLA, so not hugely impressive. Yeah, I, in fact, on that, I should say none of us, I don't think, considers ourselves uh, Robotron experts. There are inevitably players out there in this 35-year-old super intense game that are geniuses at this incredible hand-eye coordination and skill and knowledge. And I think we are all just mere enthusiasts. I can't even claim the same sort of level of expertise as I had on the Double Dragon podcast, for instance. Uh, so, yeah, it's pure. It's purely about the enjoyment of it, not and, and, and personal bests, I have no pretensions towards becoming technically any good at this. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, my, my games are this last minute. And uh, if I see wave 10, 11, I'm doing OK. So the game was apparently, I learned today, known as Robot Wars during development, obviously many years before the, uh, the TV series of the same name and the, uh, that scene of setting robots, ro- remote control robots on one another. Uh, it was developed using a gimmicks 6809. In those days, there weren't programming languages as such, no Photoshop, no APIs. Everything was written in machine code and you just did your own stuff. Uh, Eugene Jarvis says this was like paradise. You never had to worry about learning a 400 page programming language manual. And interestingly, the arcade machine made something, uh, made use of something new, which was a graphics processing unit. Uh, but Jarvis has pointed out that the CPU and the GPU couldn't both operate at the same time due to hardware restrictions. Yeah. So I don't know exactly how that works, but I guess it's kind of pulsing between the two somehow. Uh, that's my science fiction take on it. Anyone <laughs> more technical than me want to try to explain that? I'll go with that. Yeah, I guess it might load it. things into the CPU RAM from the GPU and then the GPU shuts down once it's done its little bit of job. But again, that's only a plucked guess out of thin air. So I like it. Lay- layman's, uh, layman's attempts at understanding that which we consider to be magic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jarvis said it was like a game jam thing. 
Uh, it was interactive game design. This is how games were mainly made back then. Uh, that's my own input. You started with the minimal design, he says, played it and improved it until it was fun. A game could evolve into something totally different from the original intention. We were seeking out the fun as opposed to following a script. It took six months to develop, a mere six months, imagine that. Mm. And he says everything turned out right. As well as the obvious reference to George Orwell's 1984 in the title, there's, there's a, elements of dystopian sci-fi future. We're, we're predating Terminator here, which was 1984, of course, um, but there was already plenty of um, robots going wrong, sci-fi books in the 60s, Isaac Asimov and uh, various things like that. But it's also important to say that this was absolutely not the first twin stick controlled game. There had been five or six before it, um, four of which had noticeable similarities in in both control and sort of gameplay, going all the way back to Taito's 1975 uh, cowboy game Gunfight, which Nintendo then, as they used to do, uh, borrowed quite, Mm. or plagiarised, I'm going to say, from with their game Sheriff, in 1979, and you may recognise that from the WarioWare games where it crops up as a, as a cameo quite often. Uh, there's another arcade game called Vanguard from a, a now long since defunct company called Century in 1981. And at a similar time, on the uh, both at the arcades and on the Atari home VCS system, there's a game called Space Dungeon, um, which again, as you can imagine, with twin sticks, um, made a lot of sense. We'll come back to the the controls and twin sticks because obviously it's a, it's a fundamental part. Even if these guys weren't the first, uh, Mikhail, you wanted to talk about the the look of this game, and yeah, I, I, I'm keen to talk about this because obviously, in some ways, it's incredibly retro and stark. But mm. I think it has something quite special about it. Yeah, that's a crazy thing because when you look at it very objectively, there's actually quite of a lack of an art style in uh, in Robotron. Yes. If you th- think that this game came out in 1982, two years before that we had Pac-Man and then Donkey Kong by Namco and uh, Nintendo. Uh, we've got we had Dig Dug by Namco as well, and these these all had a sort of a cutesy, clearly defined art style with characters and. That's no wonder if you consider to think that uh, the designers of those games were also illustrators and cartoonists. And Eugene Jarvis was uh, a programmer, first and foremost. Worked on pinball tables before that, uh, doing the uh, yeah. electronics and the, and the programming work uh, for, for those. And yeah, not much of an artist. So he really <laughs> worked with multicolored blocks and geometric shapes and some, some circles here and there. And just it, it almost feels like a kid playing with blocks together to 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 put some figures in and characters together. Despite that, there's something so striking and iconic about the way Robotron looks. It's the the black background, and it's mm. the f- I think it's all the flashing going on with the uh, with the shapes in the game, and that's something that carried on into a lot of Williams uh, arcade games afterwards and Midway arcade games as well. You even see it in, uh, for example, typography in uh, the Mortal Kombat games with like flashing letters and everything. Yeah, it's like a, this, yeah. this motive that uh, kept on carrying on through. Yeah, it's no wonder that this company and these people had their roots in pinball machines because it all has a very amusement hall type of feeling to it with the flashing lights, with the sounds, which we'll go into later. Uh, you mentioned the wipe screen in between, uh, in between waves, in between levels. It's an assault on the senses, basically, despite its uh, simple art style-less appearance. 
Yeah, it's concentric squares, effectively, or rectangles. Yeah. Uh, but in 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 the one or two seconds that it's on the screen, in between frantic waves, it has a little uh, like a, a Stanley Kubrick's two thousand and one kind of you know, moment of trippy going through spaceness about it i always imagine someone with um, with epilepsy just sort of fainting in front of the cabinet whenever that happened yeah absolutely it can't be these games cannot be photosensitive uh, epileptic friendly um yeah yeah certainly throughout throughout the week I, I was playing it late at night in a darkened room on a big crt television just uh, sitting pretty close to the screen just so i could uh make out what was going on and, uh, yeah. and weaving in between uh, narrow spaces and everything. And it just, the shapes and the colors started being imprinted on my brain, basically. Uh, <laughs> and I started, it, it was like a, I was entering a hip, hypnotized state. It was uh, pretty uncanny. Yeah, and you have to get there to uh, to, to, to do well. Yeah. <laughs> Robotron, if, if you're thinking, as we were talking about with uh, Tetris recently, if you're thinking about what you're doing, you're probably not doing very well. I think Eugene Jarvis described the pixel art in the game such as it is as a programmer art. Yeah. You know, there was no yeah, artist on this game. Yeah, as such. And this is these are what they eight by eight pixels, something like that. You still like to see that to this day though, with um with people like Terry Kavanagh. That's still a yeah. thing where you get these blocky graphics because there's one man making it and he's not an artist. He just does his best with what with the pixels he's got. Yeah, the biggest yeah, example absolutely. is probably Minecraft. That's all programmer mm, graphics. Yeah. And that's become visually iconic as well. Yeah, in its own right, yeah. Mm. Dan, how do you feel about the look of this game, both if you can think back and also playing it now, obviously acknowledging its uh, its vintage status? It's quite hard to think back because I would have been playing an Atari 2600 when I would have first seen this. And I think it, mm. it struck me that it didn't look uh, as dissimilar to my home games as other arcade machines did at That's the time. That's true. It, yeah. um, and the sound as well, it felt much more like the home experience that I was used to, I think. Um, yeah. But again, there more is sprites, this. Though. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, so yeah. much more going on, or less <laughs> flicker as well. There is some look and feel to it. It almost feels to me like the enemies are dancing around the screen. Almost, it's almost got a sort of rhythm and a dance to it that isn't sort of yes. set in to a beat like as in real music. But yeah, there's some sort of timing to it that makes it feel like it's all kind of coming together as one thing against you. There is a, a synesthesia going on with the, with the sound um, in the sense that there's a pulsing that goes with each step of, of movement. Yeah, and, and you're, you're absolutely right about the sort of rhythm, the rhythmic nature of it. Uh, obviously, Space Invaders had it famously. And um, yeah, when I saw, I've not played Crypt of the Necrodancer. But that's a rhythm action roguelike, isn't it? And yeah. and uh, and I, I think and it, and it because it's viewed top down with with uh, relatively uh, simple sprite-y kind of graphics. I think there is yeah it is it is reminiscent of that. The things that were striking for me at the time, as I say, I'd watched, I'd, I'd attempted to play Defender and died horrifically. Um, but even just moving that ship up and down. Uh, and thrusting it a few, you know, forward a few times. This is one of the things that it's it's obviously really hard to get across, especially to some of our younger listeners. But for those of us of a certain age, the mere act of interacting with a video game was astonishing back in the late seventies, early eighties. Even the act of pressing the button. So I think one of the things that put me off Robotron was the fact that I didn't get to press any buttons <laughs> while I was playing it because I remember just the joy of pressing like the the wait button at crossing or um, there was a, there were a load of interactive machines at the Natural History Museum and as much as learning about the dinosaurs and seeing the stuffed animals, 
it was pressing buttons was just <laughs> a thrill as, as to me as a child. And, so and I guess true. that's... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not just me, right? That was like... That's half the fun uh, of museums. Because nowadays yeah. I'm missing out with the touchscreens. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it. And um, and, I, and I certainly still get a certain amount of pleasure from it. I still... I love the sound of arcade sticks. I love the feel of, of pressing buttons. But obviously we've done it so many times now. And, uh, you know, the, that feeling of power and interactivity with Electronica has as obviously it's become so incredibly ubiquitous, but it must be said that it was a major, major deal back in the early digital age or certainly the early proliferation of digital age. Um, I mean, I suppose we weren't that far on from analog, you know, valve-driven steam computers and whatever. So that was all part of it. And I think Robotron's look, to bring it back to the aesthetic, totally has that, that incredible... There's something about games from the era with pure black mm. backdrops and and again it's something that is slightly lost if you're not playing on a on a crt because I, I know blacks are getting better on modern screens and 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 all that but uh the the inky vastness of and and the and the slight reflection that you would get from a cathode ray tube arcade monitor and of course it would also be picking up all the lights and marquees and and whatever else of everything around it and often arcades would have light rope lights and lights on the ceilings and so it was often actually you were trying to pick out the detail on the screen of what was going on around you and this cacophony of sound both from the game and and from the surrounding machines it was completely intoxicating yeah this this is why games like pac-man championship edition dx and geometry wars choose this type of particular neon crazy yes. art style because they look like the way we remember arcade games being it makes the gray seem more black to our eyes i guess there is that as well the contrast is an, is an important thing definitely and yeah that 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 black in itself i know it, sounds, it seems crazy to be praising the blackness of a screen the fact that there's no art there there's no detail but actually again to a child a child who was obsessed with star wars and space uh you know playing games like tempest where you were going into this vector screen of, of blackness was just it's it's so hard to put into words just how inspirational it was and and i guess you're hearing it here in cane and rinse in the sense that us three are doing this in our 40s and whatever uh still completely kind of starry-eyed and and uh, and mesmerized by the whole medium of video games these were our first impressions absolutely and it likely won't have the same effect on on people coming to it now if they've bought uh, i noticed that i think the most recent midway compilation for uh, for the last gen machines recently came to backwards compatibility on xbox one so there is uh, even though Robotron isn't backwards compatible, sadly, currently on Xbox One, you can play Robotron via that Midway Arcade Treasures. But yeah, it's also, it's not just about the blackness itself, which has a, a fear and a mystery and an excitement to it. It's the contrast of the incredibly bright phosphor, uh, as you were referring to there, Mikhail, of not just the flashing items such as the the electrified obstacles mm. and, and the cruise missiles and stuff, but just the, the, the pure red, red, redness of the grunts and yeah. the green of the hulks and all that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, when you combine all that in with that, that rhythmic movement and sound as you were talking about there, Dan, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it, it, to me... And this is not just nostalgia because I don't really have nostalgia for Robotron in the same way as I do for some things. I still think in in a modern retro cool way, it looks it still looks absolutely fantastic. Three D is the wrong word to use, but it sort of stands out because of the blackness. Like the the, sc- the black of the screen could be at any depth to your mind. It could be that's right. It could yeah. just be a void, like it seems and like it looks. 
and the rest could be sort of imprinted over it you know it's um everything pops and yeah it's interesting so the 360 version has some uh, dubious uh quotes enhanced graphics modes yeah they're not smoothing filters in the sense that they actually add a lot of pixels to the sprites so they become i don't know 32 by 32 or 64 by 64 they attempt to imbue the characters with more personality and stuff to me they end up looking really naff but interestingly enhanced two mode adds a kind of sort of backdrop uh, nothing too bold. It's like tiles, like greenish, dark greenish tiles. Uh, but it adds nothing to me. I, I just don't understand why anyone would consider it enhanced. Mm. It's it, it's not just me being a purist. I literally don't think it contributes anything. Um, but that may be a, a purely subjective thing. I can't really say enough about how this game sounds. Uh, we've opened the show with a little bit of the sound of a game of Robotron. And as I say, these sound effects, they'd made their debut, some of them in the pinball machines that uh, that these same guys had worked on some years before. Uh, if you play the uh, the pinball arcade and play some of the early Williams coin-ops in that game, you'll hear literally some of the exact same sound effects. They use them again in Defender, I should say, and they sounded amazing to me again. Um, but I think overall, the sound of Robotron and Defender, it's it's kind of a tie, but I think not only are they my favourite sounding video games, they're just about my favourite non-musical sounds yeah. in the world. <laughs> just, I just think <laughs> this game sounds unbelievably cool, and it's especially good nowadays, because although I can't properly replicate the twin sticks and, and the cathode ray tube currently, what I can do is I can pump the sound through my subwoofer, yeah. and it it's awesome. The, la- the laser fire sounds like a pulsating, dr- like a pulsating drum beat. Like there's this really heavy bassy sound. It's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, there is a lot of bass to those sounds, considering what they were using to make them. It's a real kick to it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's uh, there's this crazy noise uh, when you first spawn into the game that yeah. <laughs> something along those uh, <laughs> sounds. I should yeah. say. And, yeah, and crazy noise when you game over as well. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. and the and between the the sound between waves is really iconic. I mean, I'm pretty sure, and I'm I'm sad that I can't give specific examples, but I've heard these sounds being reused and sampled in pieces of oh, pieces of media absolutely. afterwards. Sometimes it's a bit of a running joke with with my girlfriend because I, f- I find it hilarious. Sometimes you still see like a modern set television drama, and it'll be someone playing PlayStation, obviously, be- or you know PS4 or whatever. And obviously, because of uh, audio pickups and things like that, somebody in the sound room has still added the sounds of Robotron <laughs> to, uh, to you know. Yeah. So they'll be playing Call of Duty or Halo or whatever. Yeah. And it will still be the sound archive from, yeah, totally, or something very similar. But I think they, they became so iconic that they are almost like in the same way as people used to say playing Atari or then later playing Nintendo, now playing PlayStation or Xbox. Playing Robotron became not, not, not the name. I mean, the sound of it yeah. became the sound of video games. Exactly. That's what I was going to say, yeah. The sound combined with the, with the graphics have this real obnoxiousness to it. Like this, this is, and I have a, a thing for that. Uh, pieces of media that are completely in your face and unapologetic. This machine, Robotron 2084, uh, with its graphics and its sounds is something that I wasn't surprised I was intimidated by it back in the days because it sounds and looks like something to be feared. Just this overall brashness and obnoxiousness that the uh, the 
sand and the gravis combine is um, is something tr- yeah really is something to behold as a statement of intent aesthetically uh, and with the controls and the difficulty level it was it's like it throws a gauntlet yeah. down it's very much um it was i think it, you know it was probably aimed at a slightly maybe maybe my, my maybe even older than i was at the point maybe you know there were a lot of these arcade uh guys there was a there was a tv show wasn't there in america which was about these uh you know these hot young arcade players i think it was probably aimed at that scene the very hardcore arcade scene of maybe 14 to 20 year olds i don't think it was aimed at kids uh, uh like a lot of games were it was not kiddie friendly. It was never likely to spread across the male female demographic or whatever, like Pac Man and, and things like that. And I'm not saying that there were no women Robotron players, but it it very much I think set its stall out aesthetically to appeal to a certain kind of gamer. Yeah. That was already an established kind of gamer. The tongue in cheek satire obviously nods to that too. It's um, a kind of we know you know sci fi, therefore we're gonna sort of play the trope and make a little joke of it rather than just play it completely straight it was uh, as some people would say rock and roll <laughs> this whole thing <laughs> it's a punk rock game yeah. yeah yeah definitely so one of the things that uh, has been hard to replicate as already mentioned is is the fact that although we're, we're very lucky in the sense that by default we now have twin sticks and in fact you can play this for instance on the 360 version you can play it with entirely digital controls if you use the D-pad and the buttons, or you can use the analog controls, which obviously translate to digital eight-way joysticks with, uh, with, the, with the two sticks. And it's okay, and it works, and it functions, and it's not like they've had to make any major compromises like they did with Defender, where they've actually changed the, the fundamental inputs of the game. However, we talked recently about the actual kinetic, visceral relationship that you have with certain games, like the slamming of the reverse elbow smash, having to really hit those buttons and in, in, uh, in Double Dragon. Um, the actual feel of, of wrestling a joystick is different. It has a different effect on the brain. And in fact, uh, Eugene Jarvis talks about this in uh, an interview on the original Midway arcade compilation where he talks about you're actually kind of wrestling the machine. It's like actually rocking on, you know, these are very durable, hard-wearing, steel-shafted micro-switch joysticks and you can actually tilt the cabinet even if it's got sandbags inside weighting it down because you're you're playing at this this incredible intensity and, and Unless uh, obviously you can sort yourself out on main with a with a twin stick setup, such things do exist. But for most of us, we'll probably be playing this now uh, with a with a some kind of modern Xbox or whatever type controller. And I think you do lose something of the experience in that respect. I would agree. I mean, imagine so because I have never actually played on an extra Robotron machine. But just right. I, just trying to picture it, just trying to imagine how it would be to stand in front of that machine and grab those two sticks with uh, with two hands, and and then I think the transition uh, just sitting at home uh, with an Xbox controller might be yeah might you, you might lose something in the process. Yeah, I think that that even going back to the mid '90s, playing this on PS One, it was wonderful to have these games in the home. Same with the Namco Museum collections, but it was where you start to realize that there are certain things which you can't replicate. And I know, Mikhail, you keep a, you have a very nice cathode ray tube. Um, you play a lot of stuff on the original format, whereas I've uh, I've moved away from that in with many systems, not with all, yeah. but uh, um, 
and it's uh, and as we say, it's not about being elitist or purist or anything like that. It's about not wanting to lose out on the best possible you know uh, experience. Yeah. Your per- best personal experience. But this is how I look at compilations and downloadable uh, ROMs of arcade games. I know this is not the real thing. It's more like a like a, a keepsake kind of thing. Like I see view these uh, yeah. these types of compilations more as souvenirs of a, of a time that's gone by. You know, so you know you're e- even if you let's say have a cabinet set up and a PCB, even if you have an arcade cabinet with a cathode ray tube standing in your in your room, it's still mm. not the same as playing it in an actual arcade so that experience you could never truly replicate at home no absolutely even if you're not paying for it there and then it's it's no longer the same if you haven't got if you haven't got the potential for a crowd of strangers to come up behind you or uh, one stranger to hover over you and intimidate you or breathe bad breath on you whatever yeah it's never it's never quite the same it's more than just the software or just the hardware yeah totally I've never thought about it as not being um, the mm. actual real version before, but you're right. It's kind of like the, the version in a rear view mirror almost. It's like, yeah. you know, it's the same software and everything about it should technically be the same, but there's so much more to an experience than just accessing the software as is, isn't it? And that's also why a lot of people, when uh, they uh, first, uh, their first experience of these arcade games is through a compilation disc or through a download Rather, uh, often feel very underwhelmed uh, when when that is their first experience, you know, because they they missed out on that part of it. Yeah, and also because technology has progressed in some ways, yeah. it's it's going to be less impressive seeing, for instance, the number of sprites there are on screen or the way that the the grunt enemies split into uh, into their constitution rows or whatever. This is kind of a separate topic, but uh, I think. You know, the best uh, retro versions, we've praised the work of certain studios such as M2 when they really go the extra mile to give you the best possible replication of a version. I mean, some of the stuff that they've done on the 3D series, the Sega 3D series on 3DS is insane where they've they've recorded the noises of the original gear sticks on the coin ops and things like that. Mm. And, and so you can you can have that. Uh, echoing away as you play that's brilliant stuff and and for me things like uh, online leaderboards go a long way to making up for any deficiencies of uh, of this not being the original hardware but yeah i i think the way that we've already started talking about robotron 2084 in glowing terms if somebody now just goes and reloads the 360 version i can totally imagine people going meh but hopefully by the end of this, uh, as we've seen with some of our recent shows, people will be gagging to go back to it and we'll get a bit more out of it. William sold around 19,000 arcade cabinets, which uh, made it a hit, despite uh, there being some internal naysaying fairly uh, late in the process. Uh, they didn't necessarily expect this was going to be a hit, but it turned out that, that people were into it. It's actually quite an expensive game to buy as well. So talking about replicating the the thing as close as you can, it would be to to buy an original cabinet, and you are looking at a couple of thousand dollars for for a for a setup, um, you know, which is affordable for I'm sure some of our listeners, but it is a big investment for one game. But can it run Crisis? Not easily, although. Given what people do these days, someone will probably try it. As we said, this wasn't the first dual joystick game, but in this case it was created because uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, Eugene Jarvis enjoyed uh, the um, the game Berserk, which was by Stern Electronics, another long since forgotten name, but he was uh, less keen about the way it controlled. 
And he realized that, in fact, when you held the button down, the joystick then was the shooting device. So you could shoot in different directions while remaining stationary. But I think he wanted a bit more, which was obviously the ability to shoot one direction and run in another, uh, eight by eight, as it were. And the other consideration was that uh, Jarvis had actually broken his hand in a car accident after uh, finishing Defender 2, Stargate. And so he couldn't easily press buttons with his right hand. However, he could rest his uh, his cast on a second joystick, his his right hand. Uh, so obviously that made it easier for him to develop. He says, a light bulb went off in my head. The joystick fires the bullets. This is in reference to Berserk. Then I thought, why not have two joysticks, one to move and one to fire? It was so obvious, such a natural control method. In one fell swoop, Eugene devised a breakthrough gaming mechanic for his new title and one that perseveres to this day. Although in typically modest fashion, he notes that if he hadn't thought of it, someone else would have. In interjection, somebody else already had. Uh, initially, you had to get robots to collide and destroy each other, but that was too passive. After playing Defender and Stargate for two years, you got to kill things. So that's when the shooting joystick came into play. The pacifist version of Robotron, he says it was fun for about 15 minutes running the robots into the electrodes, but pacifism has its limits. Gandhi, the video game, would have to wait. It was time for some killing action. We wired up the fire joystick and the chaos was unbelievable. Next, we dialed up the robot count on the terminal. 10 was fun. How about 20, 30, 60, 90, 120? The tension of having the world converge on you from all sides simultaneously in the incredible body count created an unparalleled adrenaline rush. Add it to the mental overload of a truly ambidextrous control, and it was insanity at its best. This is this something that I experienced trying to get uh, better at the game in the last couple of days. Just how incredibly panic inducing it is to spawn in the middle of a room with where you're literally there you know they're they're the uh, the grunts are standing almost on top of you already in the beginning yeah. from from every angle you're scrambling to trying to create an opening and and trying to escape mm. out of the uh out of the crowd basically there's no split yeah. second thought in between the round starting and everything just coming at you so it's just straight full on the whole time yeah there is actually a pause. Um, you Weirdly, and I, I think it's deliberate, you do actually have like a second of movement before the enemies kick in, ah. which, of course, you can kill yourself. <laughs> by, yeah, walk into by, something, yeah. Yeah, you can walk into something. I usually use that to grab uh, grab family members, rescue family members. And we'll talk about the, the different waves, but it mixes things up. So your natural instinct to get out of there isn't always... To be trusted, so uh, yeah, not not all waves are, uh, are dealt with in the same way. Yeah, and another thing I wanted to say as well about not playing it properly in the arcades back in the day, as well as the intimidatory factors that we've already mentioned, it was also the thought of using two joysticks was brain scrambling enough, moving and firing at this point. You know, now I've been playing twin stick shooters since Smash TV, probably before, um, and I, I love them. I get on with them pretty well, but. Back then, and this is another thing we've talked about, sometimes arcade machines would have a joystick in the middle and buttons left or right, so you could elect which hand to steer with and which hand to shoot with. Sometimes they would only have buttons on one side, and sometimes it would be the left and sometimes it would be the right. So even coming to different games and having to use different hand to move and different game to fire at the age of you know 8, 9, 10, whatever, was challenging because my brain hadn't worked its way around all that stuff yet and again you're you're dealing with small amounts of 10 p's you've been given a pound you don't want to waste money so you're obviously going to gravitate towards things that you're comfortable with even though you are desperate to play every new game that there is of course 
so yeah, that's another it's another thing that, that perhaps we take for granted. I play loads and loads of modern incarnations of twin stick games, and it and it doesn't seem like a, a brain scrambler at all. But back then, it did. I didn't even I wasn't I didn't even have a definitely left is my movement and right is my firing hand. It could have been the other way around. So this would have seemed even more confusing <laughs> at this point. Uh, Matt Barton in Gama Sutra back in some years ago, 2014, I think, uh, says that the result was that Robotron was one of the very first all-out non-stop action games that truly resonated with the general public. Although unforgiving in its intensity and requiring an almost zen-like state of mind to rack up a respectable score, the game was perhaps the first evolution of that elusive perfect Twitch game and all-you-can-kill buffet. There are some enemies you can't kill, of course. One in particular, the Hulk. Uh, Let's talk about our little guy. Three things I noted. Uh, I consider him quite nimble, although the gaps between enemies are small and ever smaller, so it's very easy to just clip a pixel and die. You can have up to four shots on screen at any one time, and bear in mind that, again, at this point, playing games like Space Invaders and Galaxian, because of the power of machines, it was common to only have one bullet, one uh, missile sprite on screen. So Gallagher uh, doubled it and then quadrupled it if you had a double ship, which felt incredible. So Robotron, you're able to fire up to four missiles at one time. And obviously the closer you get to things, the faster you fire. And it felt incredibly powerful. This is something that Jarvis really got a handle on quickly because in Defender also the the, the big laser you fire off is also mm. something that was unlike any other spaceship shooter uh, that came before it. Toothpaste laser. Yeah. <laughs> uh, row, row upon row upon row. Yeah. And Mikhail, you, you stumbled across something. In the original arcade flyer, there is reference to the player having a shield. Yeah, an optic shield. Uh, <laughs> but I'm inclined to say that this is just story guff. So yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't. Not a mechanic. No, not a mechanic. I couldn't find anything on it. Nothing in interviews either. And it wasn't what I suspected, uh, a canned feature or anything like that. So yeah, the story guff, I think. Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about the story other than it's set in 2084 and the robots have taken over. Um, Spoiler, the robots always win. Yes. uh, There's, there's, there's issues with the fact there's only one human family left. uh, If you think about inbreeding um, potential, but uh, we'll gloss over that. Your man, your dude, is a, a genetically engineered guy. Something went wrong during this process, and now you can shoot lasers. That's basically it. In some texts, he's a mutant. In some texts, he's a cyborg. Yeah, I think different versions uh, embellished the uh, the plot a bit if they had an instruction manual to fill or the back of a box. So, But the, the original attract mode uh, goes around and tells you everything, in fact, more than you need to know, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so enemy types, this, is, this game is really... Once you've dealt with your dude, uh, it, it is all about the enemies. Um, there are a, a, a little selection of about 10 enemy types. The grunt is the most common, the one-hit kill, your popcorn, if you will, the uh, ground-roving unit network terminators. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> worth, neatly worth 100 points. Um, but everything in this game, there's there's something more to it. So these not only stomp around the screen, but... And I don't know if this was originally the the result of processor uh, cycles being freed up but the grunts actually increase velocity as there are fewer and fewer yeah. of them and they march towards you faster and faster the other enemy that you meet very early on is the hulk uh, which is indestructible and the thing i remember about this from playing the version i had at home as a kid 
which was uh, the Atari version. I realise I've kind of skipped that. I've been saying I didn't really play it for this, but I did play a ton of the 8-bit Atari version, of which there were several, but I had the cartridge for the Atari 800XL. But I'm kind of discounting it. I think I think the reason I was skipping past it and saying I didn't really play it was because, although it was a solid port, possibly one of the best home ports of the time, it was so much easier than the original <laughs> coin-op, and the controls were different. So it almost feels like I was playing something else but yeah i did i did play a lot of it it's true yeah and the thing i remember from that instruction manual was the fact that it pointed out that you can slow the hulks and steer them about a little bit yeah. so their, their their role is to kill the family exactly yeah uh, although it's the last human family and there are only three members of that family you can have plenty of these uh mommies daddies and mikey's on the screen at, at any one time and this is really where the high score action comes in. So you're trying to keep the hulks, you're trying to hoover up as many as you can, collect them before the hulks kill them. And in some cases, you can actually move the hulk, uh, steer the hulk away from squishing the family. And you get a little skull and crossbones and a plaintive whale. Yeah, you basically have to concentrate fire on them to push them away. You've also got the brains, uh, specifically on the brainwave, uh, terrifying creatures uh, that warp in. They're worth 500 points apiece. And they, uh, they try to turn the humans into zombie progs, which uh, make a beeline towards you. And they also fire cruise missiles, which have a fairly random homing trajectory. So it homes, but it also darts off. Um, they're intimidating. Do, do but... the progs really make a beeline? They're what what from my experience they move in crazy erratic patterns that do my head in. Uh you might be right actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels this is the weird thing. This is this is kind of one of the things we need to get into again, acknowledging that we're not expert players, but it feels like everything in this game makes a beeline for you, but actually being good at this game is acknowledging that that's not quite the case. Yeah. So there's another enemy which I call the fire hydrant which is the enforcer, which are which are spawned by spheroids. And then when the enforcers, is that right? Is the enforcer the one that comes yeah, out of the spheroids? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And then the enforcers fire sparks. So it feels like the enforcers fly at you and it feels like the sparks come at you. But actually there are, you can do little jinks and pauses and move in a circle, kind of little semicircle to shake things off. Yeah. You can mislead them. Mislead them, exactly. It's when you combine all these elements, there's, a, there's still a couple of enemies to uh, mention. There's the quarks. So these are little pulsing squares which bounce around the screen and spawn tanks, multiple tanks. Then they, from, from thence, in, in biblical style, uh, <laughs> tank begat tank shell, uh, which bounce off the walls. Yeah. Waves have different numbers of different enemies. One of the things that Eugene Jarvis says is that he only considers that you're playing Robotron properly if you're playing it at... Difficulty setting 10, which uh, which I don't do because <laughs> everything develops much more quickly. But but we have been watching some, not expert play, but uh, how to get beyond beginner to intermediate level play videos. And it's interesting that uh, they talk very much about how it is about manipulating what's on screen. Obviously, pure skill in a lot of cases, just dodging and, and pixel weaving between things. But it's... As with so many of the most interesting games, it's about the 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 combination of these relatively small number of simplistic elements and the and the fact that you have a certain amount of ability to dictate them. Together, they weave uh, quite a complex whole. Actually, they create lots of different uh, types of situations that you have to deal with. Try to describe your your Robotron experience. Like, can you put into words how how it how it feels and, and what it is again this is which we're trying to 
put into words something which you should probably be almost doing. It's one of those games where your your brain is doing umpteen micro calculations per second. So, so is it possible to describe what's what's the what's the hook and what's the what's the what's the feel that that keeps people coming back to this game after thirty five years? Well, you think uh, you said before that when you start thinking, it's already too late. But I've noticed, and that's probably because I'm uh, quite bad at the game, uh, that I do a lot of thinking. Same here. For example, when a wave starts out, I've learned to pinpoint, kind of make a mental note or, or on where uh, the spheroids and the quarks are. Spheroids, yeah. yeah. And just yeah. and kill those fast because they give you a lot of points. And the more enforcers they spawn, the, the more difficult uh, you'll make it for yourself. Uh, but that's not always possible because hulks get in the way and, you know, sometimes they're just, uh, oh, you have to deal with immediate dangers and immediate situations of uh, the uh, grunts creeping up on you. At the same time, you're trying to pinpoint where the family members are because there's a multiplier, a score multiplier at work. Uh, so when you have to, every family member that you pick up uh, in succession doubles the, the previous score that you get from them. So you go go from uh, a thousand, I believe, yeah, to two thousand, to three thousand, to four thousand, to five thousand. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five. But yeah. if you lose a life, your uh, multiplier gets reset, and in the next mm-hmm. stage, the multiplier gets reset as well. And if uh, hulks grab family members, you also are robbed of points. So you might think like. You know, what's the big deal? I'm playing this game to survive. Uh, I'm just uh, not trying to get killed myself. Screw those. uh, Screw the last human family. But in this game, scoring and survival are so much linked together because you're going to make mistakes. Your margin uh, for error is really small. I mean, even on the super plays, you see people dying. You know, you don't don't see miraculous super plays where where uh, people are just going through 75 waves uh, without getting hit. Uh, not much in any, not one that I've seen in any case. And so the, the, the merciful thing about uh, Robotron 2084 is that extents or extra lives are earned by points and you earn them pretty quickly if you keep on scoring high. So the family members become sort of a leash of life for you because they're the, the most effective way of racking up points fast as a matter of fact i recall one of my latest session my most high scoring session where i was on a first brainwave and i managed to defend mikey this is a a trick for those that don't know the the brains will prioritize uh, the little boy mikey and they won't grab any other uh family member and and turn him into a proc uh, unless you rescue mikey or they've gotten to mikey so I managed to defend Mikey and kill all, all the brains. And there was only one uh, grunt walking across the stage. So I had all these mummies mm. to pick up. And at that point, because I put myself in so much harm's way, I wasn't on my last, uh, running around on my last life. But hoovering up all those mummies gave me three lives in that yeah. stage only. Therein lies the game, really. Yeah. yeah. Keeping, keep, keeping alive long enough to hoover up those, uh, those family members uh, while they're at 5,000. If you're on the, the default uh, extra life setting, tournament settings or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, uh, twenty five thousand points every five of those. You've yeah, you've got an extra life. And I, you said something exactly that I wanted to say. Like when you watch 
top players at this, even world record runs and marathon runs, they die. Yeah. People die in this game. It's not like those superhuman Tetris players where you just think, well, that's impossible. You watch people play this and you actually think, well, they're, they're really, really good. They've got great skills. They've got fantastic observation and they're using their peripheral vision and, yeah. and all that. But they they never look, it never looks quite so completely undoable. I don't like, think it's a perfect game in the same way that you could have with, say, Pac-Man or Dig Dug or something like that. It's not as... Um... Yeah. regimented in sort of in terms of moment to moment play is it I think that's that's exactly right partly because the those behaviours of the some of the enemy shells and things are quite uh, not randomised pseudo random isn't it it's kind of uh, yeah and then the actual waves themselves are sort of I suppose what we call now procedurally generated where it's yes. um, again pseudo random yeah yeah. It, as random as you can get within a certain set of parameters, but you never know where it's going to be from yeah. one moment to the next. And with every every wave, they get denser and denser and denser. And it's not like a bullet hell shooter where you have a small hitbox and you can weave between stuff. You really have hardly any space to move later on uh, in later waves. So, you know, it's, it's very likely you're going to get hit by something. The one thing I do notice about uh, good players playing this, skilled practice players, is that uh, they're less... Because I'm like you, Mikhail, and and I suspect you as well, Dan. That spheroids are number one priority when when they appear. Stages normally, there everything's introduced normally in in ones or twos. But then before very long, a few waves in, you've got five or six spheroids, and you know that that's going to uh, spark any number of enforcers, which will then start shooting at you, and the screen becomes completely unmanageable. Yeah. But good players don't think much about having one or two spheroids left on the no. screen. They'll quite happily continue bumbling around, collecting stuff, shooting grunts, because they they know how to deal with enforcers and spark. And you can rack up more points. Yeah, exactly. I imagine the best way to play it would let them spawn their uh, maximum amount of enforcers before they yep. disappear. So you get the kill for the, uh, for the spheroid and you get the kill for all the uh, enforcers, all the points. And of course, one of the key things that they say is it's all well and good, you know, trying to maximize your score, but it's never worth it if you're losing lives to do it because staying alive, because this is a game in which you will die no matter how good you are, getting those extra lives and not dying is so you're you're playing this constant risk reward yeah. game uh really really fast thinking so as you say like I'm like you I don't I don't haven't played this enough and I'm not I haven't got that kind of brain where I can just go pure zen on a game yeah. like this but you can see how that would be beneficial <laughs> yeah the fa- the very last game that I played before the recording I sort of entered that zen-like state of where I was no longer thinking and just like going on pure instinct. And I started, when I I think back of it, uh, to it, I started, I noticed that I was making this really weird movement with with my character as well, where I sort of started Hmm. twiddling and 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 making very small circle circular movements across the, scre- the screen and somehow that kept yeah. kept me alive uh, for much longer than i thought it would be absolutely yeah it's a recommended technique yeah, and spinning, uh, spinning the stick the... around me to to shoot as much stuff as possible with stray shots and yeah, it was pretty yeah, pretty crazy there are some enemies that if you face them down they're less aggressive and some enemies that if you don't they are yeah. and and uh, uh, and again i don't know how much of that is deliberate coding uh, some of it I think like the, the Mikey situation that you mentioned I think that was a bug yeah, yeah that's pure kismet but, yeah but I think I think like the, the, the famous Capcom combo bug I think it was like oh okay that works yeah <laughs> I'll leave it in. apparently it was a few years until um, Jarvis even discovered the Mikey bug himself but 
arcade players must really? have been using it for, yeah. for all that time, I'm sure. But, but he didn't yeah. notice it himself until a few years after. And I'll tell you one thing, the, the only advantage really of the, uh, the so, so-called enhanced graphics of the 360 version is that it does make the Mikey slightly more distinct from the Grunt because I still have problems. Uh, I, know, I know Mikey's smaller than a Grunt, but they are the exact same shade of red yeah. and they are primarily red. And in a busy screen, I still find it occasionally confusing. Yeah, especially when the brainwave comes up. Sometimes I just can't see where he is. Yeah. Or, or the yeah. brains already are on top of him and I've already converted them. At the risk of sounding like a Monty Python's Yorkshireman, you think you've got it bad. I see something shiny on screen and go to pick it up and then suddenly realize I've died. <laughs> I do that all the time in this game and I can't stop myself doing it. And I've, oh, yeah. I try and fight so hard against that instinct. But I think it's all the games that have come in between. Yeah. Especially Smash TV, having played that so much. I think yeah. I see shiny stuff on the ground and then automatically want to go and pick it up before yeah, realizing I mean, it's an enemy. Those yeah, and those darn, you know, blocks, electric yeah. electrified blocks yes. Which, yes, those. which are pretty, you know, randomized or, or procedurally generated. Yeah. I, I think in Robotron more than any other video game that I can think of that I've played a, a fair amount of, I find myself and and I know this just makes me not a very good video game player. I find myself veering towards death, knowing that it's coming, knowing that I'm doing it and completely unable to stop myself from doing it. Like, I just don't have time to think, why am I? So I've got time to think, I know I'm about to kill myself like an idiot, but I don't have time to think, we'll move the other way. <laughs> it's yeah. so frustrating. I just end up sitting, you can lose like four or five lives in, in a few seconds in this yeah. game. And I'll just be sitting there shaking my head. Genuinely, literally shaking my head at myself, like, what are you doing? Yeah. But then I've also, you know, I've been playing this again. It's 35 years old. I've had this version for 10 years. And while I've been putting these show notes together, nearly 3,000 words, folks, I just kept wanting to play another game. Yeah. Just, you know, and, and as much as anything, the hoovering up of the family is the is the real I think that's the real dopamine hit that's in there yeah. is getting five thousand, five thousand, five thousand, five thousand in a row is just so delicious. Num num num. <laughs> yeah. Like you little you got the little glowing numbers that appear on screen, which is a very old school thing, but it just oh it's just so nice and you get that that quite harsh uh, extra life. And just the the simple little, the simple uh joy of any good to the shooter the delicious pop when your laser hits oh, something yeah. and it dissipates and in in robotron you know like in a lot of uh william arcade games they have all these crazy particle effects going on as well like the enemies phase out when you hit them like they sort of the pixels fall apart and stretch across the screen splitting yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. The reason I kept on playing and playing and playing and I played for way longer than I was planning to is <laughs> because every time I died, unlike uh, Geometry Wars, I knew exactly why I died and what I was doing wrong. Even though the game is feels impossibly hard at times, I still knew that it was my mistake when I, uh, when I died. And um, Geometry Wars always does my head in with its crazy light show and enemies that spawn out of nowhere almost on top of you. Uh, it, it becomes unmanageable for me very quickly. But I don't have that with uh, Robot 20, uh, Robotron 2084, funnily enough. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Geometry Wars. We covered it uh, some time yeah. ago in Canarins. Were you on that one, Dan? I, I don't remember. think I was, no. no. I listened to it in preparation um, for this podcast, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would certainly, if people were looking for contemporary twin stick shooters to play, I would certainly say that uh, two Geometry Wars two was one of the ones I would recommend. But but 
having said that, you know, some of your some of your criticism there is probably is probably fair, Mikhail. There does come a point where all that that neon light show stuff and the the extra polygons that are being thrown around can become a distraction yeah. from the from the purity of the game. And an- another thing, what makes Robotron twenty eighty four so pure is that you start out a screen and you you can immediately map out where all the enemies are. Like there's nothing. There's yes. no surprises coming on except for the the spawning of uh, of uh, enforcers and tanks. But you can track that as well if you're observant and play yeah, yeah. enough and you have uh, enough presence of mind to do so. Yeah, it's true. Everything that you need to do is displayed yeah. right at the start, unless you're slow. In which case, there will be more things, bullets projectiles enemies and stuff like that but actually interestingly every ninth wave is the 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 wave with invisible walls yeah i haven't actually worked out is the play area larger on those or is that just my brain playing trick i'm not sure yeah that's a good point i don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it feels like you you go further um, they tend to be very grunt-heavy waves, uh, and I know that the the top players consider the nine the nine waves actually the um, some of the hardest because uh, getting out to the edge is difficult. Whereas the uh, weirdly the ones that I find intimidating uh, are the, the the tank waves, quarks and tanks. But actually, they say that those can be quite rewarding. Uh, you can get to a point where th- those are those are much easier to manage, and in fact. Those are the waves that are counterintuitive in the sense that most most of the waves demand that you get out to the edges as quickly as possible so you can kite the grunts around after you. But the the nature of the tanks means that staying in the middle on those waves is actually preferable. Yeah, because the uh, shells will good. bounce off the walls. Precisely. Yeah, and crowd yeah. control from the centre outwards. Eugene Jarvis uh, says that uh, the rescue theme was was uh, introduced to Robotron uh, as as it was in it was transplanted from Defender, saving those humanoids. Uh, he says this was added to the game so it wasn't just about killing everything. We got to tell a story with different characters and used rescuing clones of the last human family for progressive scoring. Oh, they're clones. Oh, well, that's all right. Then. <laughs> so why do we even need the last yeah, human family? Yeah, we can keep on cloning them. Mm. <laughs> Nonsense. Dear Williams yeah. Electronics. Uh, he explains that once you're up to 5,000 points, you become motivated to try for more since 25,000 points provides an extra life. The character of the game changes. You become almost suicidal in order to grab humans. Uh, trivia, the idea and the inspiration for the character Mikey was from the 1970s commercial for Life Serial. Uh, that's got to be a US thing, but I like it. Uh, not to be confused with Mikey from the Konami arcade game Mikey, which was spelt I-E, I think. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so another little uh, hint or tip I learned somewhere today. I think, again, this is probably a bug, but during that tank wave, if you can avoid shooting those rebounding shots for as long as you can, uh, if the tanks fire 20 uh, that don't hit anything, they stop firing. So I guess that plays into what I was saying about uh, expert players saying you can get to a point where those waves are, are actually can be almost a rest because you can get it so that they're, they're no longer firing. At <laughs> On the subject of the brainwave in particular, um, to keep the balance of power intact, Eugene decided to enable players to shoot enemy projectiles, adding an element of defense. But it wasn't long before another foe was added, the brains. These were considered master controllers, preying on humans, turning them into brainwashed progs that incessantly hone in on the player. Their defense is a cruise missile projectile that seeks you out, but in a random fashion. It sometimes goes away from you, but comes back seeking a random spot around you, often killing you in the process. This adds suspense. As they come at you, you're not sure what's going to happen. 
And you can shoot those as well, but it's tricky yeah. because of their strange movement. The key thing I learned um, from uh, one of these videos was something that I guess I'd been doing just through playing it, but Eugene Jarvis just said, get out of the middle. Like that, that is the first thing to learn is to make a make an exit strategy for most waves. Maybe the, you know, it doesn't count for every wave, but for the majority of waves, it's get to the edge. And um, and then it becomes much easier to to manage the screen from there. Because everything in the middle, everything seems to be closing in on you. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's probably psychological as much as anything, but also, yeah, literally, every you know, some things have further to travel to to get yeah. to. So, as I say, this game is played like like all these games at a very high level. There's quite a few different sort of setups for playing Robotron competitively perhaps the most bog standard is the uh is tournament play and according to the high score arcade high score repository twin galaxies the current world record by some distance i might add is 1,236,950 points by one john p McAllister. that's almost precisely 1 million more points than my xbox live arcade high score although i have a feeling i did get more than that back on the uh, back on the atari no back on the ps1 definitely on the atari so this is a high score on one credit this is difficulty 10 though so mine my scores are on difficulty whatever the default on the blue rom is 5 or something so so it doesn't count at all really uh, and also this is 50k life bonuses so uh, so you only get a life every 10 humans effectively instead of every five any rom set is allowed in fact because actually the gameplay enemy dynamics and wave layouts are identical across all the rom sets unlike many games where they actually revised a lot of that stuff uh, as i said earlier jarvis has long stated the only real way to play robotron is on max difficulty annoyingly on the xbox version that means that it won't upload your high scores because you're playing at too high a difficulty rather than default setting that's where leaderboards become a bit uh, sketchy if they haven't included multiple um, variants uh, Resogun, a game that I love based obviously influenced by Defender and working uh, a developer that's now working with Eugene Jarvis uh, that has high score tables by difficulty so yes please if you're going to make a high score game developers please make sure that you have multiple leaderboards for multiple setups thank you when the player bumps up the life bonus to twice the default, 50k as opposed to 25, it makes a challenge which puts to a stop to even the most extreme players. The term endurance marathon becomes an amusing taunt by the devious Robotrons of 2084 as they always win. It's illegal to use any form of pause to halt the game code, either hardware or software, understandably, obviously. The actual endurance marathon, the VidKids Vid Extreme Endurance Marathon or the VKE, is play on slightly easier settings, I think, but um, it's a one-credit run. Uh, it's illegal to trap a brain on the right-hand side of the screen in order to take an extended break so you can't run off to the toilet. <laughs> uh, and we are talking about days and days of play here, potentially. Uh, obviously, you can't have another person nip in, take the controls, um, no cumulative scoring across runs, uh, no pause mechanisms again. The life counter rolls back to zero after 255 in the way that so many of these, these games did and the internal the original version except on that tie-dye ROM the, in, the internal score counter rolls at 100 million points uh, it's a math anomaly which will then reward the player one life for every item scored on screen they had a whole race to 100 million thing some years ago in 2014 this was I think this was later in the year after the game developer conference talk in 2014 
literally days, like 24 hours of play plus um, to score 100 million points. Now, as somebody who can't even get to half a million, quarter of a million, in fact, on default settings, this boggles my mind. And as I say, even though this is a slightly different beast to some of those other games where you, you just think that that style of that level of play is impossible. This looks more possible in some ways just because they die and therefore make them look less inhuman in their play. But actually, I, I played some on level 10 earlier and everything happens faster. Everything homes in on you faster. Everything develops faster. Everything spawns faster. Is it still the same amount of enemies uh, per wave? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's just, yeah, um, everything, yeah every, everything is just more aggressive, basically as Eugene Jarvis says it should be. Any thoughts on, you know, we, we've, we've been having fun just toing and throwing you and I, Mikhail, this week, just talking about our scores. We've been playing, uh, you've been playing on the Xbox version um, on the Midway Arcade Treasures, and I've been playing the 360 version. We, I assume we're playing the same default settings, yeah. probably. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah, no, it was default. So it should be, it should be similar. Uh, my high score's still a little higher than yours. Yeah. <laughs> Just thought I'd drop that in there. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up re- real quick, though. Yeah, you yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, and I, as I say, I topped out my score uh, today, um, and I feel like you know I could carry on playing and 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 continue to get better, even though uh, I am now very close to my forty fifth birthday. Uh, sometimes it feels like I can only do well in short bursts before I kind of flag a bit in terms of being able to do it. I don't think it's not that my hand eye coordinational reflexes have dulled, especially. It's more that. I feel distracted and like I should be concentrating on something. Yeah, my concentration wanes at a certain point where even if I've got in that Zen zone for a certain game, then it will drop off at some point where, like you say, you suddenly think, what am I really doing here? Yeah. Yeah, you you lose that youthful intensity and and single-minded sense of purpose, I think. Yeah, so I maxed out my score today at a paltry 167 thousand something that's like 100k more than you had exactly a that, week that ago. when i started out with or then i had a couple uh, 100k more than i uh, had a couple of days ago in fact it's interesting because i used to think i was uh, very bad at uh, twin stick shooters i have this this thing where i'm quite decent at uh, your average uh, scrolling japanese style uh, 2d shooter um, mm. where you just you know you have a single firing direction you grab power-ups with spread shots exactly to uh, etc to cover more of the screen uh, but this whole thing of doing a lot of aiming and precise target prioritizing always uh, was a bit hard on my uh, on my poor brain i feel so <laughs> i i used to make these really silly mistakes of getting angry when i missed a certain target and trying to really pursue yeah. that single target and concentrate my fire on a single target while a lot of other danger was creeping up on me and getting me instead so that, yes. that always uh, did my head in but now uh, after really putting in more time with uh, Robotron 2084 and trying to play it more seriously, I feel like I was starting to slowly get the hang of it at this day and age and uh, starting to wrap my head around it finally. It's definitely a game, as I say, that I won't necessarily put on on a daily basis like uh, I will with some even you know more contemporary games, games that have a built-in daily challenge and all that sort of thing. But I'll definitely... When I'm in the mood for like, you know, a sort of virtual arcade session, yeah. I'll definitely put it on. But then and then once you're into that, it's very easy to, to find yourself going back to it and back to it and back to it, especially if you just leave it running while you're doing other things. Must must have one more go. 
Dan, did you ever have a, a sort of relationship with any any of these versions where you where you have this you know sort of desire to to beat your personal best? Um, again, not since yeah. the Lynx version, I don't think. I mean, I've tried it right. on every compilation since, but it's been yeah. one of those things where I, maybe it's just that I'm so used to the sort of wrong control scheme mm. that going to the twin sticks again. And again, twin sticks like we have nowadays is never going to be quite the same eight-way clicky micro-switch joysticks. No. So uh, I've never really got into the sort of, not tournament play, but you know what I mean, the higher level side of things in the compilation mm. since. I just play it to enjoy it rather than for to try and sort yeah. of beat anything. But, but I understand the, the whole thrill of it. Sure. Yeah, I definitely went through a long phase of this on on the PS One with the the fact that you could uh, save high scores to the memory card. So even that was something compared to previous versions I'd had. So going back to earlier versions, and I should say there are dozens of official and unofficial versions, conversions, emulations, and ports of this uh, going all the way back to the eight bit era. As I say, I think there were three completely different versions for Atari eight bit machines. Uh, I had one of them, I think the best regarded one. There was a you know, Commodore 64 port, a Spectrum port, Amstrad versions, loads of different developers involved. Probably in some cases, you know, I yeah, I don't know whether every version was fully officially licensed or anything like that. This was in the days as well where you would get games that were called Robot Ron, and it would be, <laughs> uh, it would be a, a game that looked and played as close to Robotron as, as those programmers could manage, uh, and it would have never passed under the noses of anyone at, at Williams or whatever. Um, but my Atari version, which was uh, coded by somebody in, in at Atari, I think, in America, as they did for their 8-bits. Uh, and as I say, came on a cartridge, which was nice. The the Atari 8-bit computers had a cartridge slot as well, as as did the Commodore 64. But I think the, the Atari 8-bit got more uh, cartridges because they were compatible with one of the other VCS systems anyway. So, yeah, I played a lot of this. Now, the the way that they got around the control method, and I suspect this is true of a lot of the pre-twin stick versions, is that you would lock in your firing direction. So you would stab the controller in a direction and press fire and then hold the fire button down. And then you could walk in the eight directions while still firing in the last direction that you'd fired. So you could sort of replicate you know, you can run away and fire at the same time, but you had to constantly do just a little movement and there was obviously a little pause, so it just slowed everything down. But of course, the game was slower and had fewer enemies on screen, even though the Atari 8-bit was a was a fine machine, which was probably the, the strongest of the 8-bits at sprite handling and, uh, and things like that. It was slower and easier than the coin-op. But yeah, I played it a ton, actually, uh, and I, I used to... <laughs> When you have a computer where the average loading time for a cassette is 20 minutes and you've got some cartridges, you often play the cartridges. <laughs> so that made perfect sense. Um, but I don't think I played any other ports. I think that's the only port I ever played. Uh, but Dan, this Lynx version, so this was apparently by... Yeah, it's Shadowsoft. There were so many games on the Lynx that were made by at least something related to Atari or Midway yes. or wh whichever one it was. Um, I was quite surprised when I did look this, this up earlier this week that, oh, hang on, that's not made by... It's a yeah. third-party thing entirely. But mm. um, I think the control scheme that I liked most, I think there was one that was much like you're saying where you locked in a direction. But the one that I played the most was similar to the setups that you got on um, Smash TV, on certainly on the Mega Drive. I'm not quite sure if any of the 16-bit um, computer ports had it where one mm. button was for um, moving clockwise and one was for anti-clockwise, and it was Ooh. just auto-fire on, and uh, ah, you could just spin right. while firing automatically. Again, it's going to have been slower, I'm sure, and less stuff on screen. But I used to be able to get to um, at least the point where the waves repeat. Is that 21? Right. Is it the 21st uh, when it 
sort of it doesn't doesn't loop in a sort of perfect sense because again they're slightly randomly generated but i think there's a sort of repetition of sorts at 21 and i used to be able to get past that on this dodgy control method so i suppose there were very few games on the links i only had a handful yeah. myself but this was one that really really grabbed me by the balls back then although uh, although it was uh, a a much maligned machine in many ways the the links was a capable sprite handling machine uh, especially for a handheld it was it was quite technologically advanced for the time so um, i'm looking at the screenshots here back of the box and uh, and it looks like it managed to certainly have a lot of uh, grunts on the screen how fast it moved i don't know i'm not looking at it moving right now did it scroll at all or was it one was no it, it was it was one screen one, one. one hit i think um the resolution in one direction, I can't remember if it's vertical or the horizontal, is mm. either the same or um, divisible by two from the original arcade game. So I sure. think they're just slightly squatter or they're just slightly stretched yeah. in one direction. But as it is, it's it's a pretty um, convincing port of, of the game. It's, it felt like it to me anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah, my 12-year-old yeah. self certainly yeah. thought so. Yeah, and I guess the, the coin-up would have already been, what, six years old at that point? Yeah, it was pretty like old that. for getting a home conversion by that point. Mm. But then I suppose the Lynx was getting a lot of things like that. I think we'd already had um, maybe Centipede or a couple of other older classics from yeah. from that sort of time. And and the Lynx kind of became this uh, sort of depository for games that you didn't think you'd see again. It was it was an odd little machine. Did you always play it plugged in or did you use batteries? <laughs> oh, it had to be plugged in most of the time like if it was going in the car then obviously i'd take it with the batteries for that few hours that you could get out of it but yeah it was it was more like a home console that you held in your hands really like it was there was the switch for its for its time <laughs> maybe you also played Lamatron. only bits and bobs i never had a commodore 64 so i've only played it around other people's houses and um oh, it's a amiga st Lamatron. oh okay what was the one did he not do a sort of robotron based well, it must have been amiga then i guess but um yeah, it's one of those things that I played at other people's houses only here and there briefly. Uh, so this is Jeff Minter, of course, uh, who is still to this day making games that are based on early 80s coin-ops. Bless him. Absolutely love him for it. Games that resemble the other, the Atari and Williams games at the time. They're all Tempest. And most of them are Tempest. <laughs> Lots of them are Tempest. Yeah. He's also mucked around with uh, with Centipede and, and, and things like that. Yes, Llamatron 2112 was a shareware game. So the idea was that uh, you would have a copy of it and if you enjoyed it, you would send him a fiver. And I remember reading somewhere that he made about 10K out of it. So even though it was probably distributed millions of times, uh, he said it was just about worth his while. And this is very early 90s. So £10,000 wasn't to be sniffed at. Back that's then. cool. And it's 2112. 20, yeah. So that's even further into the yeah. future. Yes. And a few interesting things was that this had, uh, it, was, it was a pretty faithful conversion, but it also had, uh, it took a load of liberties. It went down the usual uh, Jeff Minter humor route, had some Monty Python-esque humor, some toilet humor, literally had a toilet that spewed turds at you on one wave. It had a simultaneous two-player option. It had lots of Jeff Minter's famous favorite sampled sound effects. Uh, I think it even had a, if you were playing one player, I think player two was a drone of some kind. Anyway, I played it a ton. I probably played it almost as much as I'd played the Atari 8-bit conversion of the the real game. So yeah, that was that was a very cool one. And our one bit of correspondence from the forum, which came in late, canerince.com slash forum from Stanshaw mentions it. Stanshaw says, I only played Robotron 2084 for the first time in March 2017 at Arcade Club in Berry." played hours and hours of Llamatron on the ST as a kid, and I love a good twin-stick shooter. I've played hours of Geometry Wars, but I wasn't prepared for how hard, intense, and overwhelming it would be. I think the biggest factor is the sound, the bassy pulse of the shots is relentless. It's like listening to chiptune gabba. 
The steadily encroaching enemies, unidentifiable to me, only add to the tension. It's also unnervingly responsive for my modern sensibilities. No inertia, no weight, no aftertouch, just precise robotic bedlam. The only moments of respite are a brief psychedelic screen wipe and sine wave tone. And the next wave begins again. Brutal, exhilarating. I can imagine that as a kid, I would have pumped this full of 10p pieces. I'll certainly be back to play it again. That's a fantastic write-up from somebody who's only played it since March 2017 and uh, <laughs> uh, and hasn't played it a lot yet. Thank you, Stan Shaw. Uh, so I just wanted to very briefly mention the fact that this game has come out since the XBLA version, at least once officially, as part of the Midway pack for LEGO Dimensions. Wow. So I haven't played Lego Dimensions. I know our Ryan, Ryan Heyman, is a fan of the Lego games and he's got some of the Lego Dimension stuff. So this is where umpteen IPs from film, comic, cartoons, TV games have all been mishmashed together in this Lego world. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, it also sounds like a money Sounds pit. like something you would do as a kid, like pulling all your toys, toys together from different uh, franchises. I think that's exactly it yeah um and yeah one of the licenses is midway games and uh, as well as midway arcade themed stuff in the the lego game world as i understand it you can also just play once again emulations of of those games yeah i think probably. it's the same set as is in uh, midway arcade origins and the the previous packs. packs i think it's that same pack of games so some great stuff in there as well as robotron and you get some lego stuff so a game that i remember existing but i remember not playing i guess came out in the wake of midway arcade treasures on ps1 and pc first uh, called robotron x so this is november 96 um some point in 97 in europe and 98 in japan uh, any of you played robotron x only a demo i think or maybe hired from blockbuster only very very briefly so sort of polygonized take uh, isometric view on the original robotron yeah but it was upgraded and enhanced for release on the N64. Now, I remember this being reviewed okay. I think according to game rankings, it's like a 66% review average or something. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's an upgrade on Robotron X, apparently. Um, Mikhail, you know this one. Yeah, I've got it. Back in the uh, days when, I had, uh, when the N64 was the hot thing, I probably wouldn't have... Uh, even given it a, a second glance, it was kind of kind Indeed. of in his yeah. wave of, you know, 3D polygonal updates of uh, games like Frogger and the likes. Yeah. So it's uh, Defender not, well. not yeah. anything that piqued my interest. But throughout the years, yeah. uh, Robotron 64 has uh, gotten some very good word of mouth from uh, people whose uh, taste and uh, judgment on video games I uh, think highly of. So cool. I put it on my shopping list, and I think about two years back or something, I came across a, a, a cartridge at a convention, and they go for get, go for super cheap as well. It probably cost me two euros or something. So oh, okay. um, yeah, I, I snapped it up, and it's a it's a very fun and interesting sixty uh, four bit uh, version of uh, right. of Robotron. Um, so. What I know from the PS1 version is that the camera was all wonky and it had a, had a very uh, uh, crappy frame rate. So that the mm. Robotron 64 has a very uh, smooth or a very consistent frame rate of about 30 frames per second, I believe. <laughs> right. 
The yeah. camera is kind of funky and interesting still, but not to a point where it ups, uh, obfuscates uh, your view. So the, basically what happens mm. if you walk your with your little character uh, down the screen, the, the view sort of, uh, the, the playing field sort of tilts slightly upwards, but not to an angle of, of where you can't see your character anymore. And it has this a very psychedelic backdrop and it has this crazy pumping damn near hard style techno soundtrack that keeps playing throughout the really? whole thing without interruptions between the stages uh, it just it just uh, e- either evolves or switches up uh, in between stages but there's no no breaks in the music uh, i would have if i would be you know if somebody would play this in my house i would smash the speakers but uh, it's <laughs> fits the total psychedelicness and obnoxiousness and all out arcadey brashness of this game to a T. So I'm uh, I'm right. <laughs> I'm letting it slide. Uh, it's got some weird um, baby faced mascot captain character. Yeah, that's that's a funny thing. Your, your character now because this game is not was not created under the supervision of Eugene Jarvis, but uh, no. Crave Entertainment, the developers of this game. Um, actually had the idea to call the main character Eugene. So you're playing as Eugene, a little bald, <laughs> crazy, crazy scientist little guy with uh, with, with uh, flashing uh, colorful goggles that must really hurt his eyes. And, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's remarkably more easygoing than Robertson 2084. So if you're looking for a more relaxed experience of that particular game, this might be the one for you. It's actually... You know, despite how hard I find the original, it's uh, playing Robotron uh, Robotron 64 is almost uh, boring up until a certain point because you just don't you don't mm. just don't lose your life. You wreck way more lives than you uh, than you lose uh, for till up about wave 40 where the game actually gets good. Wow. <laughs> so as a, uh, as a, I, yeah. I made it today to wave uh, 67, I believe. Uh, yeah. And by contrast, uh, on the original, I could only make it to wave eleven, and I've I've put a score down of almost one million. What makes it so easy, or so easy going in the beginning at least, is that the enemies are not nearly as aggressive, even though there's a lot of them, and there are a lot of human family members running around. So it's very easy to rack up scores. Yet at, at the same time, because there are so many family members. Uh, running around they also tend to get killed very quickly by the hulks so i imagine being the scoring potential being quite high in this uh, in this game actually if you actually manage to save them all in uh, every stage which is that's a pretty tricky thing to do actually it's still fun to play uh although i think it's a bit of a casual experience of robotron and it uh it misses Mm. the intensity and the zen-like moments that the uh that the original game has but yeah it, it iterates on the game quite nicely with some new enemy types there's some power-ups you can grab like a shield and multiple direction fire and things like that uh what's also cool is that there's a two-player mode but they missed the opportunity to go full smash tv on it and made it uh, a two-player mode where one uh person controls the character and the other person controls the fire <laughs> but that also wow. makes it uh, possible to dual wield in the game so you grab two analog sticks of two n64 controllers and you got yourself a twin oh, stick setup it's a game Do that I. I'm happy to own and uh, pop in every now and then. Uh, not not an unmissable classic or any uh, anything of the sort. No. But uh, you might have felt differently if you paid sixty euros back in nineteen ninety eight. Probably, yeah. But, <laughs> but for, for, for two euros in some uh, yeah on some convention, it's yeah. uh, it was a good uh, goodbye. 
Uh, so some other other appearances of Robotron in popular culture and things. Uh, apparently, the robots attacking the player show up in the movie Pixels near the end, where the arcade characters begin a full-on attack on Earth. I have not seen that film. The game is also mentioned in the novel, famous novel, soon to be a movie, Ready Player One, as uh, protagonist Wade Watts' favourite video game. A modified version of the game, a clone, I suppose, uh, appears in uh, Fallout 4's DLC or- Automatron as a hidden mini game called Automatron, reskinned with robots of the franchise. I assume that's on your little Pip Boy thing. You-, you can play games on there, can't you? Yeah, so. there's little mini games in there, yeah. That sounds good. Uh, and rapper MF Doom, no, me neither, <laughs> says this goes out to man, woman and child from Robotron. In the song, put your quarters uh, up. Good old Doom is a favourite of mine. I only found reference to this on Wikipedia, so uh, I can't vouch for it. But Robotron 2, uh, the video game crash of the early 80s saw the VidKids disband before creating Robotron's sequel. DeMar went back to pinball development and Jarvis went back to college. Later, both went on to entertainment industry successes with hits in pinball, racing games, light gun games, casino games and social media games. Robotron 2 remained a forgotten project, never to be implemented. Whether it was actually a project or not, I don't know. Maybe they got as far as drawing a title screen or something. But there was a kind of Robotron 2. Well, there were two really, I suppose. But the first one is a game called Blaster. Now, I've played Blaster on these uh, retro compilations. It came out the year later. It was by Jarvis and DeMar. And the plot has it. It is the year 2085. The Robotrons have destroyed the human race. The grunts from Robotron make an appearance. But if you're not familiar with this game, if you just saw it, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that's the sequel to Robotron. (laughs) Because it is a very ambitious 3D sprite based into the screen shoot 'em up. Yeah. And I think it's actually all right. Like, yes, it's, it's surprisingly playable for a 1983 3D sprite based shoot up. It's got some amazing slowdown. Yeah, I quite liked it as well from what I played on the compilation. And I did notice the, uh, the similarities with uh, Robotron because of the, uh, yeah, the enemy sprites, basically. I think the Hulk is also in there, if I recall correctly. Okay. Yeah, uh, so we're not really covering it because it's so different and, yeah, it's it's just not even in the same genre, I suppose. I mean, it is, it's a shoot-em-up, but... Dan, did you ever play Blaster? I don't think I did, no. I mean, I looked at the video, it doesn't really ring any bells. No, it's it's an odd one, but yeah, it's surprisingly it's 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 worth checking out uh, as much as anything from a historical perspective. In the same way that iRobot, which is from around the same time, an early Polygon game by Atari, uh, it's like oh, people were actually making three D games this far back. Uh, and Smash TV, I've already mentioned it. Uh, we're not covering it because I want to cover it properly someday. Uh, I absolutely love that game. I suspect Dan and McKeel may be back for that one. And we might even cover Total Carnage too, although I've never finished Total Carnage. Um, But I have finished Smash TV, albeit using a lot of credits. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we did manage to get some three-word reviews in from Twitter. Follow us at Kane and Rince if you want. Glenn Watts says, shoot, die, repeat. Andrew Brown says, run, gun, fun. Craigity Craig, an optimistic future. Optimistic in the sense that there's still a single family alive, I suppose. (laughs) <laughs> Michael Ledward gives us Wall of Mechs A Bearfish Pie says Ageless Arena Altercation Mehmet says Twin Stick Bible 
And finally, Darren Jones, the editor of Retro Gamer magazine, says Robotron is amazing. I don't think Darren officially submitted that as a three-word review, but uh, but he did. It wasn't it wasn't at via our friend uh, Ashley at Nintendo, so so we're taking it. <laughs> uh, don't know if we have any listeners at Retro Gamer. Uh, our our friends at Retro Asylum were recently featured, so uh, so hello. And uh, yes, they featured um, Robotron at least twice. I have every issue of Retro Gamer magazine right here going all the way back. And uh, it's been featured in at least a couple of issues, uh, 60 and 107. And if you like Kane and Rince, honestly, you should probably subscribe to Retro Gamer magazine. It's recently changed publishers from Imagine to Future, but uh, it's, yeah, it's not really changed much at all. Certainly not for the worse, in my opinion, anyway. So to summarise, Robotron 2084 uh, is still, I think, a really, really cool game. It sounds cooler than anything on the planet, other than maybe the sound of wind in trees and rattling through canyons and things like that. Uh, I think in terms of man-made sounds, it's uh, other than music, it's just about the best thing I can think of that I would I would like to I mean you wouldn't you know, it probably wouldn't be that relaxing to have it in like a you know a flotation tank or anything but and yeah as we said it 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 maintains an enormous amount of charisma a very uh, a real sense of cool as Mikhail said it's obnoxious in a way it's not it's not something that's friendly and and cuddleable and lovable but it's it's intense and it's frenetic and it's full on and it's demanding uh, and it's also, I think, still an awful lot of fun to play. I've been playing it this week and absolutely at no point has it been one of those games where I've been thinking, you know, I really want to cover this game for the podcast, but playing it is actually a challenge in 2017 because it's so old at 35 years. This game is just, to me, just intensely playable. The fact that you have these four bullets on screen at any one time, player projectiles and so many enemies and no slowdown. It's, yeah, still compelling high score based action now it's uh, we you know, we bent the cane and rinse rules not that you can complete this game but none of us has you know really gone deep into it in terms of expert play because none of us is that talented basically but my desire remain yeah remains even after all these years of having first played it playing that atari version in the in the mid 80s and all the way back to the corner i still want to be slightly better at it and it was yeah, it was fun comparing high scores this week. I only wish it was yeah, it was kind of available to play more easily on contemporary formats, not including Lego Dimensions, not including that Midway compilation that is backwards compatible on Xbox One. Uh, I would like to see another proper full blown re-release of this and some of the other Midway properties uh, for current current formats. Um, just get some high score action going again. But yes, I do recommend Robotron. I think it's uh, it's an it's an all time classic. Mikhail. Yeah, so playing Robotron twenty eighty four it's uh, got me thinking about the uh, history of the the twin stick shooter or the arena shooter with twin stick controls, and it came out in a time where um, Western developed games for a long uh, and that was going to change for a long time at least could still make a big impact on uh, Japanese developers. So, you know, Bre- right. Breakout yeah. was basically co-opted into Arkanoid by, uh, from Atari to Taito. Joust has had a long-lasting impact on uh, Nintendo. And I'm not just speaking about Balloon Fight only, but uh, it goes deeper than that. And Wizardry basically gave birth to the, the Japanese RPG. For 
For some strange uh, reason, the twin stick shooter never caught on in Japan, it seems. Uh, a, mm. a country where the 2D shoot 'em up really took flight and uh, kept on developing uh, over decades. I think it's a matter of... There were a couple of uh, follow-ups in, uh, in, in, in the West to this uh, style of game, uh, Smash TV being the most notable one. But it's kind of interesting to note that the stars seem to be aligned in around 2005 when controllers came standardly equipped with uh, two analog sticks and uh, the advent of uh, downloadable game services on consoles like Xbox Live mm. that we would really see uh, developers, uh, yeah, starting with Geometry Wars, basically, really see developers uh, go to town on this uh, genre, a lot of indie developers as well. And I always used to think that this genre wasn't really for me. Like I couldn't, like I discussed before, I couldn't really wrap my head around uh, all this, all this power at your fingertips and all this, this all this, yeah. this decision making. But you know, playing through Robotron 2084 uh, for the last couple of days has got me thinking differently. I'm starting to catch on, but I've also started to notice just how sophisticated this particular game was, because if you compare yeah. it to the modern incarnation of it the one from 2005 the original uh, geometry, geometry wars retro evolved it's actually a much more sophisticated uh, sophisticated game than that and even though geometry wars has a lot more shapes with different behavior there's this element of the uh, family rescuing that's completely missing from that game which adds a quite a, a significant layer of complexity to robotron 2084 I came on the show because I like talking about old arcade games, and I've played a lot of them, even you know, be it at the time or after the fact. Uh, but I've come away from this having a lot more appreciation and uh, respect for Robotron that I already had, mind you. Uh, and it's gotten me thirsty to play more of it and uh, and and trying to get better at it. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, yes, perhaps we'll we'll do Smash TV in Volume Seven. Just to uh, to say on on Geometry Wars, the the Geoms, the addition of Geoms in later versions, possibly adds some of what is missing in the earlier games in terms of yeah. the protecting and collecting. Yeah, I was mainly talking about the first one, of course. Sure, sure. Also, and I want to mention um, possibly my favourite robotron clone as it were or or spiritual successor on unofficial is a game called mutant storm reloaded Mm. which is another um there was a game called mutant storm on pc by pom-pom games and they brought it in enhanced form to xbox live arcade again very early days of of xbla i suspect it's still available they did a sequel which i didn't like quite as much but mutant storm reloaded i think is uh yeah an absolute belter i think it's Um, backwards compatible uh, actually really I'm sure it was in that sale the other month. I I could be totally wrong. If anyone's listening now and swearing at me, then <laughs> so be it. Maybe that was the second one. Mutant Storm something or other. Anyway. Extreme. Yes. Interesting. There are two so Mutant that Storms. That sounds like a, like a recommendation as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mutant Storm Reloaded. Check it out. All right. Let's conclude with Dan and your Robotron summary. I've got the worry that this is going to end up sounding negative, and it's not meant to be that in the slightest, but... Playing the game this week has literally given me a headache and I quite appreciate it for the fact that it has. Do you know what I mean? It makes me feel like such an old man, but it shows that there is that intensity there and that the the noises are that full on and brutal and in your face and uh, unforgiving, I suppose, is the 
the best word for, for every little thing about it. I'm an absolute sucker for twin stick games. What gets me is that the control scheme is one that essentially we use for the vast majority of games now. Like if a first person shooter is a twin stick shooter, essentially it's the same feel. And I don't know, you know, you're doing the same thing, moving around with one, aiming with the other. And even if you've got the vaguest interest in design and where control schemes came from, the fact that it's something that we're using all the time now that can date all the way back to 82, it absolutely fascinates me. And now it's not my favorite twin stick shooter. I've played an awful lot of them this past few years. I went almost purely mobile a few years ago for a while. And it's the uh, twin sticks work really well on a touchscreen, funnily enough. So I've played, I've played Rebels yeah. on, on, a, on a touchscreen as well. The eight-way means that it's not quite as good as it could be. But for, um, for mm. a full range, I played a silly number of twin stick shooters across, across the board. Yeah. You're roguelike types. You're kind of even a Metroidvania kind of twin stick shooter. So to me, it's Robotron is something I play for kind of a, an interest level and a, to, to look at the sort of prototype vision of what's gone since. But again, the intensity and the sheer, um, yeah, the in-your-face nature of the whole thing means that I couldn't do anything less than just recommend people at least give it a look. So it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Dan and Mikhail, as well as our correspondents, uh, editor Ryan, and uh, of course, all of you for listening. And remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast and our other shows, please do consider heading over to Patreon, patreon.com slash donating that minimum of a dollar per month or more if you want to. Uh, and if enough of you do this over the next uh, five months or so now, we will make double the amount of Cane and Rinse podcasts next year. Also, next time, in issue 274, we align ourselves with either the Scoyotel or the Order of the Flaming Rose, or neither, as we start our series of podcasts on The Witcher. <laughs> <laughs>